Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I am the Chief Diversity Officer here at the AAVMC. So um, as we get started with today's show, I want everybody to kind of get back briefly into the Wayback Machine, go back to 2020, and during the height of the social unrest associated with the murder of George Floyd. Um, much of organized veterinary medicine at that time really kind of struggled a bit to navigate through a period of major upheaval and change. Um, as many veterinary professionals spoke loudly for um, the need for more work and greater work in diversity equity and inclusion in the veterinary profession. Um, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say that some organizations really kind of struggled on the front page, um, while other organizations kind of struggled, um, you know, below the folds a bit, a bit more um, low key and maybe not quite as visibly as some others. And then we also saw a lot, of course, of expected pushback as well, um, saying that this was really not germane to the profession, that we're not, you know, what does this have to do with veterinary medicine, da 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 da, da right? Um, and I think it's important to note that um, our movement on this issue really just has not ever been a slam dunk uh, for um, this profession. So, you know, it is a work in progress, just like for any other discipline. Um, but one outcome from that period of time was, of course, the AVMA, AAVMC, Commission for Diverse, Equitable, and Inclusive Veterinary Profession. Um, that group, in turn, created a list of recommendations for the profession and some recommendations very specific to the American Veterinary Medical Association. One of those recommendations was to hire a chief diversity and inclusion officer for the AVMA, and that's really kind of to represent, uh, you know, vet med on this issue of, of diversity. Now, I'm going to take even more, a few more liberties here. Now, representing the whole profession is not for the faint of heart, folks. Like, if you didn't know, now you know. This work is not easy. It is both head and heart work. Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of folks who are really interested and passionate about these issues. Um, and there are a lot of folks who aren't for any number of reasons. And having served in my own position here at AAVMC for nearly 20 years, it has definitely had its ups and downs and moments of kind of deep crushing emotion. <laughs> so when my good friend reached out to me um, to talk about, you know, potentially pursuing this opportunity after some roundabout recruiting. Certainly a lot of folks were really kind of interested in seeing um, the candidate, a candidate with this kind of quality and background. Um, I, not gonna lie, I was like, clutch the pearls. Girl, what are you doing? <laughs> like, are you sure? Because um, again, kind of at that national level, sometimes this work can be really, really tough. So um, I hope my guest does not mind um, that, you know, share, me sharing her response. And she said, you know, Lisa, I really think that this is a great opportunity to make a difference in vet med. And I said, 
okay, well, let's do this. And uh, that was about 18 months ago. And um, yeah, so here we are. My guest today is the one and only, no other than uh, Dr. Latonya Craig, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of the American Veterinary Medical Association. Hey, girl. Hey. <laughs> Hi, everybody who's listening. I'm Hello. so happy to be here. And happy to have a conversation with you because this is just going to be like our, our weekly meeting. It's just on a public scene. <laughs> I know this is kind of, you know, for folks that uh, that know us and those who don't, um, you know, <laughs> Latanya and I are also uh, very good friends. And uh, in addition to being colleagues and we meet uh, weekly um, and then there is the ever, you know, present uh, there's not a group chat with two people, but the <laughs> the text thread, right? Um, and so this is a, a little bit of going to be a little bit of a fishbowl um, opportunity for folks to kind of see the two of us together. And it is the first time, other than um, I guess our um, discussion at AVMA this summer, um, that we've actually uh, been together talking about this work. So. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome, welcome. So, Latoya, for folks that don't know you, um, because, you know, they've been under a veterinary rock, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so, Lisa already did a, a phenomenal job of just uh, taking us through how I kind of got to this point. But um, my prior position to this position, I served as the Assistant Dean uh, for Inclusive Excellence at Purdue uh, in the College of, of Veterinary Medicine under uh, Dean Willie Reed. And so I did that work uh, for about three years, three and a half years, almost four years, um, and was able to do a lot of good good work there. Um, and part of the what we were able to do there uh, really brought me to uh, AVMA. Prior to this work, um, that work, that med, um, I served as Director of Graduate Recruitment and Diversity Retention at the University of Louisville. And um, that's where I worked with students from across different academic disciplines um, in graduate programs. Majority of those students were pursuing a PhD. Um, of those programs, there were about 90 um, there that I had to sort of uh, service. Uh, veterinary medicine, of course, was not one of those. And so this was a new field of work uh, that I was able to tap into when I left there to uh, come to Purdue. But all of my work experiences have DEI threaded through it. Um, I was also a program coordinator for the Kentucky uh, Teachers Institute. Um, and what that was, was really trying to build um, cultural responsiveness training, as we would call it now, um, into the curriculum and how can teachers take that into the classroom and apply it to the K through 12 uh, space. Um, I also was an instructor at a charter school in Washington, D.C., um, and that charter school was based on comedic philosophy. And so it was really dealing with um, Afrocentric initiatives. Um, and then the, the piece that I still do um, is I've served as an instructor for um, the Pan-African Studies Department and Social Change Division, uh, where I teach a class called Intro to Pan-African Studies. And I also teach a course on hip hop and social movements. And I've done that now for over 18 years. And so I have uh, quite a bit of experience in this work, um, both from that standpoint, you know, strategically, and then both from a programmatic a standpoint. So I'm I'm very excited to be here and do this work on this level. Um, great, great. So let us uh, stroll back again in my little time machine to about <laughs> 18 months ago when you said, hey, I think I can do some good here. So tell us a little bit about 
that? And, you know, why did you express this interest in this position at this time, this moment in history when you'd already, you know, only done a few years um, with us in vet med, we're a special bunch. And I been around long enough where I include myself in that. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I, I think a lot of folks who know me, one of the the biggest things about me is I'm a very spiritually driven person. And so uh, a lot of the decisions that I make um, are spiritually driven. I go where I'm assigned. And so every move that I make, I pray thoroughly about it. You know, how will I be used? How can I be used? Um, Is this the best move for me? Where do you see me going? Show me direction. And so I'm doing all of that, that deep work, um, led me to the decision to take on the role at AVMA. There were already quite a few people who had reached out to me to ask me if I had considered. Um, and I did my due diligence by reaching out to folks that I know in the profession, including you, Lisa, um, and some other mentors and even sponsors who uh, had a set down with me to talk about, well, this is some of what you might be getting into. And these are some things to consider, but I think this would be perfect for you. You can do some of the work that you've done at Purdue, but to do it on a national scale, um, it's not going to be easy, um, but you have weathered through some hard times and we know that you can do it. And so uh, this was certainly a challenge for me. It was an opportunity for me to grow. And I think the biggest growth point for me is, you know, my whole life really has been in academia. And so to venture out outside of that uh, was a step for me, because one of the things that I love about academia is students. And I knew that transitioning to this role, I would kind of lose that touch point. But it took another mentor to tell me, well, you don't necessarily have to do that. There is a way that you can still carve out a space to still have a touch point with students. You are building this program for the ground up so you can make it how you see it should go, but also with uh, understanding the needs that are there and students can be a part of that equation. And so um, I've I've definitely tried to carve out that space so that I don't lose that because that's one of the things that fuels me um, are the contact with students. And I, what I'm finding is that there are a lot of uh, folks that are in the profession that really want to have that touch point with students, too, because it gives them that um, that energy replenishment. Um, and so trying to find ways to connect them is also a, a motivation for me to keep that going. Yeah, the students are always so inspirational and, and um, you know, they have energy that at least I don't have anymore. <laughs> like, or at least my energy is different, right? The energy is different as you age. Um, and um, yeah, that touch point is there. The other thing, though, that has been really cool about, I think, your position as, as well as mine is that um, what we conceptualize as students, at least for me, has changed a lot over the years. And, and as I think about, you know, some of the programming that you're doing now, like Journey for Teams, you got <laughs> professionals who are students, mm-hmm. you know, and it's yeah. a different it's different. Yeah. It is different. But they do still bring a different kind of energy when that's the role that they're filling, right? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the, the clinicians being students, um, that's another angle to look at it. And then the needs, of course, are always changing uh, because when you're an undergrad and you're working with students, you know, the needs are a little bit different. You know, you're getting them acclimated to the culture of being in a higher education, uh, higher ed institution 
Um, the the world is so big to them at that point, and they're trying to figure out their way. And then when you get to graduate work, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I create a life for myself, a career that's really going to sustain me to where I can be a productive citizen? Um, and then once they get into the workforce, the needs are changing too, because there's certain things that they need in the workplace in order to be successful. And so you are a student at every part of your life. It just looks a little bit different um, and yeah. the asks are a little bit different. And so I think if you take that perspective, um, I guess you always do have a touch point. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's that lifelong learning commitment, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, so what do you, what is your vision for DEI at AVMA? You know, what, what are you hoping to accomplish? That's a that's a large question. <laughs> uh, so you know, a lot of a lot of the efforts at AVMA um, and in this profession uh, are driven by the needs of not just what I would love to see uh, done. Um, you know, when I look at that from the standpoint of what I want to see done, is really grounded in the literature about. Um, what an effective DEI strategy looks like, you know, how it needs to be strategic, um, how you need to have a plan, a goal. But then there are asks or initiatives that are from the folks on the ground um, that are saying, hey, we need more individuals who are more aware about DEI. You know, what are some things that we can be doing in the workplace to create or or foster a sense of belonging? Um, those are some of the asks. And then you have other asks where people are like, hey, there's not enough folks that look like me in this profession. And I would love to see that. Oh, I'm at a place now where I want to be a part of that change. So what can I do to kind of help support uh, that message? You know, whether it be programmatic initiatives or if there's just something that I could be doing on a day-to-day basis that could really move the needle. And so I have to take all of that into consideration. And so one of the things that I did initially when I came was to do listening tours, um, talk with folks about, um, what are some things that you would love to see that AVMA can implement? Um, and in that, com- out of that conversation uh, came out of that was the four E's. Um, and the four E's is the DEI roadmap that AVMA will plan to implement in some form or capacity. Um, that is uh, education is the first E. So how do we educate folks in the profession around uh, DEI? Um, and so we do that through a journey for teams. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, which is one of the biggest initiatives that we took on in in my first year. Uh, The other one is um, engagement. How do we engage current members or folks in the profession to get behind this work, to become active participants um, in DEI and apply that information so uh, it can inspire and empower behavior change? Um, The other one is about the experience. You know, how do we uh, really uh, assess what's happening in uh, the clinical space or what's happening on the ground. Uh, How can we build programmatic initiatives that people will want to participate in and engage? And then the last piece is exposure. And none of these are in any kind of order, but the exposure piece is there's always something that we can do to share with folks about the profession, Uh, not just high school students, not just undergraduate students that already know they wanna do vet med, Um, But honestly, there's just not enough people, not even just students, younger students. um, There's a lot of folks that still don't know the value and the breadth of veterinary, um, the veterinary profession. I even get that from my own parents who, uh, when they knew that I wanted to pursue this work, you know, they're thinking, I mean, you want to work with animals and what does DEI have to do with 
with veterinary medicine, you know, not realizing that people are tied to animals and you've got to be able to communicate with them in order to have the best kind of care for the animals. And so I said, you know, my job is working with the people and it's also working with how can we build systems to where they can communicate in a more effective way. Um, And so that's that's the job. And then the other job is how do we also educate those folks who are educating other kids about career options like advisors and counselors um, so that they have the information they need um, in order to really put veterinary medicine out there as a a viable career option. And so uh, I think a part of what I want to accomplish is falling under those four E's in some capacity. So anything that we do, all of our programs will be under one of those levels um, every single year. That's awesome. Awesome. So tell me about this first year. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, honestly, the year has has gone by uh, rather quickly. you know, it has those moments. There's moments where I'm like, ooh, this year is a little long. But then there are some moments where it's like going pretty quick, right? I think when I look back at, if I were to say, let me see what my year report card looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest things that we did this year was Journey for Teams. Yeah. And Journey for Teams is a flagship DEI program, educating the profession around DEI concepts. Um, and a part of Journey for Teams, there's a five to seven minute video that accompanies, accompanies every concept. There is a three to one um, guide, uh, which really in, encourages folks to look at what are the three highlights that you get from this DEI concept? What are two questions to consider? And then what's be, one behavior change that you can commit to, uh, to really push that behavior change? And then the other piece is a topic essay, which really does a deep dive on those DEI concepts. We implemented that. We um, had a a welcome webinar uh, to go along with it. And I can proudly say that we now have over 16,000 users um, of our platform um, within one year. And so there are um, there are schools now, some schools that are now considering putting it in their onboarding process. Um, we have our JST is now uh, being used on our board. Uh, the AVMA board is going through Journey for Teams. Um, other industries are, um, other organizations are going through it. Um, so we've got quite a few folks that have really embraced Journey for Teams um, and have given us some positive testimonials. Um, and that's what we want to see. So I can say that's one of the biggest things that has come out of the year. Uh, We also established a partnership with, um, in my hometown, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, with Central High School, which has uh, over 107 underrepresented pre-veterinary science students. Mm -hmm. And so that program, um, I've been trying to connect them with other veterinarians to come and talk to them about the profession. In fact, next week, um, next Friday, November the 10th, uh, Critter Fixers Vet for a Day will be coming to Louisville, Kentucky. They're going to take the students to Churchill Downs um, so they can learn about the horse industry, uh, the racing industry. And then they'll be going to uh, Clorywood Farms uh, for some hands-on animal experience. And so um, that's a partnership that I hope that we can continue building because I would love for that to be a model for other state VMAs to use. Um, because a lot of state VMAs have reached out and said, hey, we want a connection with high school students, but we don't necessarily know how to get it started. Um, and so this could be the model for what folks can do. So we're going to be very intentional about building uh, a platform that can be uh, easily emulated. 
Um, the other big thing that came out of last year is we established the Frederick Douglass Patterson Lifetime Achievement Award, which is the first DEI um, specific award for the work that folks are doing in this space. Um, I was very proud um, that Dean Reed was selected for that award. Um, he was nominated by his peers and then it was voted on by the board. Um, and uh, I think it, it was a very it was a very good uh, pick. Um, for someone to represent this award, uh, given that Dean Reed graduated from Tuskegee, uh, given that he has served as one of my mentors. So I was able to witness some of his work. Um, and so I think that was uh, a highlight of last year. And then the other piece is we also implemented the Unsung Hero Award. And so this is where we wanted to recognize those folks beyond just having the title of being a veterinarian or vet tech. But other folks that work in the clinical space that do work that really enhance um, the organization, the organizational culture. So your folks that sit at the front desk, your folks that uh, might uh, do grooming or your folks that might be doing groundskeeping or they're behind the scenes doing business administrative work. Uh, so we were able to recognize uh, individuals who got that award uh, in partnership with Western Veterinary Partners. Um, and then the last uh, thing is um, we had our DEI day uh, at the convention this year. Yeah. And that DEI day was in collaboration with Mike Wilson's team, who's done so much um, in this space. Um, and so he and I kind of brainstormed about what can we do in uh, the digital district that could bring folks in. And so that's where we were able to award the uh, Unsung Heroes there because uh, we wanted to do it on a public platform. Uh, we also was able to have a 20-minute interview with Dean Reed, who received the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, you and I were able to have a conversation about DEI and also talk about current issues regarding the Supreme Court decision. Um, and then we also did some things with our Journey for Teams uh, partners. So those are all of the programmatic things. And in addition to that, I have gone on 22 trips um, in this first year delivering presentations around DEI um, all in one year. So. That has been my year, uh, report card. Busy, busy, busy. <laughs> uh, for folks interested um, or who might be watching live, I've just dropped, dropped the episode featuring uh, Dean Willie Reed, um, recipient of the award in the chat, and we will be sure to include it in the show notes as well. That was a super, um, uh, he's also a, close friend, mentor, and colleague of mine. And, and um, oh, yeah, it was a real big moment. It was a real moment, um, much well-deserved. And, and uh, yeah, so, um, so let, let's, let's, let's get into it. What's been the most surprising thing about this last year? Yeah. Yeah, tell me, tell me what was what's, the question? What's, what's been the most surprising thing? Surprising thing. Uh well, I can tell you that uh traveling has been a surprise. Um, you know, I did not know I knew that traveling was going to be a part of the job, but I did not know that the demand was going to be as high as it is. Um, and you and I talk about this all the time because if someone asks me to present and I can't do it, then I'm like, well, Lisa Greenhill, and I know that you're doing it too. And so the demand is is rather rather high, um, and having to deal with knowing when to say no to some things. You cannot do it all because this work will stretch you thin. Um, but you you have the power to determine your schedule, and so you have to kind of 
take your life into consideration when you are saying yes and no to these things uh, because you want to give your best and you can't give your best if you don't have anything to pull from if you're so exhausted. Um, So that is a big part. Um, I can also tell you that um, the ABMA staff, rather small, um, they are a powerhouse of talented people. Um, You would be amazed at how small the staff are, but the heavy lifting that they do on a daily basis when it comes to the kind of programs and things that we do. Um, If you looked at just my team of of three and the three includes me, you would think that we were a team of 15 um, because of all of the work that we get done. And so I think the, the demand and then also how we're able to manage doing all of this work with just a limited number of people um, has been surprising. Um, but all of the other stuff hasn't necessarily been, uh, been a surprise because a lot of the things that have popped up I've seen before. Um, you will always have folks that are um, that you have your allies, those folks that are going to be supportive of the work that you do. Um, and you don't necessarily have to call them out because they know who they are. You know who they are. Um, but you also have those folks that are not on board um, and they may never be on board. And that's a very small percentage, um, but they are very vocal. And so those are some folks that are in every space when you're doing this work. And then you have those folks that are in the in-between. They don't necessarily say yay or nay. They're a little bit indifferent, um, but those folks are, they're in a position uh, to kind of move in one direction or another. And so I, I really put my attention toward those folks that, are willing to grow uh, or can grow. And then the ones that are supportive, uh, that's where you have to kind of put your time and energy because that's what's going to move the needle. I'm so glad that you said that because I think that there is um, a common um, uh, thought that, um, and, and there may be, there are certainly DEI folks that do kind of really just go in there and try to, really move the needle on folks who are entrenched in terms of of resistance, right? That they're really kind of um, working for those folks. Um, And and my hat's off to those folks um, because, I mean, there needs to be a a group of professionals that really kind of dedicate their time and talent to that. That is not me. Uh, (laughs) In my youth, I was a little bit more into it. But like you, I kind of, I tell people I fight for the folks in the middle, who are kind of on a tipping point of um, either kind of backsliding into kind of, um, you know, this cultural resistance versus kind of moving towards um, a level of competence and humility related to culture. And, um, and it really is a tipping point, but I don't personally spend a lot of time or lose sleep over Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to get, the most entrenched folks to kind of turn around, right? Um, um, I think that they're important. I think that they're um, certainly worthy of attention, but that's not that's not my my calling <laughs> at this particular juncture, right? Um, it's not my calling at this particular juncture. Um, so, you know, one thing I kind of wanted to to mention, what I mean, or talk a little bit about, what is it like doing DEI work in this moment? Mm. In, in history? Because I've been doing this work for so long, the moment is still the same. <laughs> it's just a really <laughs> long hour. <laughs> the moment is no different than it was 18 years ago. And sadly, um, that that is 
that is the reality. Um, DEI work is constantly changing. It, it just looks different. You know, at some point um, for folks that have been doing this stuff early on, um, you know, it didn't have the, the terms DEI to it. You know, there were so many other iterations of it. Some folks called it minority affairs. Some folks called it multicultural affairs. Um, and so there's there's so many different iterations um, and there were different needs at the time. Um, and there are different needs now. Now, when you say at this moment in history, um, I do think the need is even greater now because you have um, milestones that have been reached mm-hmm. over time. Mm-hmm. And those milestones are now being taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, it, it's really difficult to do this work when progress has been made, but then you feel like you're stepping back 20 years in time um, to fight and defend things that you thought was set in stone. Yeah. And so that can be troubling, um, especially when you have folks who never really realize the benefit or what it meant for that progress to be had. And so you got to do some reteaching of what that means. Uh, why is it that people are upset or um, or they feel some kind of way about the Supreme Court decision? Um, you know, having to re-educate around some of that um, while also trying to get people to, this isn't the end, we can still progress forward. And it doesn't mean that we stop where we are. We can still reach those milestones that we've set out. This does not mean that we wipe our hands of it and we do nothing. That is not what we do. But there are some folks that will make us believe that, well, now that the Supreme Court decision has come in play, we cannot have DEI officers. We cannot have DEI programs. We cannot use the word diversity. And so there's a lot of this interpretive overreach that it should not be there, but people are trying to use that decision to justify eliminating everything that has to do with diversity. And that's what makes this work difficult. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Um, I mean, it is. Uh, this is work that is kind of two steps forward, sometimes three steps back, four yeah. steps back. And you're just kind of, you know, oftentimes, sometimes feeling like we're relitigating. And I don't just mean judicially, but just having to transverse the same ground again and again and again and again. Um, And there's always new people kind of having their moment of clarity, awakening, whatever it is, where they're just like, hey, I'm really kind of want to know more, kind of want to do things. Um, I think that is also challenging right now because there are so many attacks on this type of work coming from different places that it's also really easy for folks to forget that all oppression is related. Yeah. It's all related. It's all connected. Right. And I was talking to someone just this like weekend about it. And and when we talk about that, sometimes it almost sounds like, oh, my gosh, the conspiracy like theories. And I'm like, no, no, the same thing that makes folks not like folks of color in many ways, ideologically, is the same thing that really makes people struggle with, you know, queer folks. Right. And so um, these things are related. The, the There's nothing new. Right. There, these things are related. Um, what oppression looks like is related the same tactics and marginalization is almost always used at certain, certainly there's different levels of, you know, <laughs> of, of dramatic um, action associated with it. But yeah, it is in, in some ways, you know, I kind of chuckled when you said it's the same, 
same moment as 18 years ago. And I was like, is it? No, it kind of is. <laughs> um, it just, it's, it's just a long moment that we change clothes in. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. We just change clothes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. There are, you know, the, the thing about this work, there's, um, there's always work to be done. We're never going to, I don't think we'll ever reach uh, a moment of perfection where there is, where we resolved all things. Um, I mean, I would hope that, you know, I yes. would hope that we would reach that point of utopia. Um, would that happen? I, I I doubt it. But I think we always have to try to strive for the better world uh, that we want to see. Um, and that means that we've got to be willing to to shift, especially if even if it's not happening to you and you are observing some things that might be happening in the workplace or you, you you're observing where moments where you need to interrupt something. Um, I think we all have to be on guard because at any moment it could be you. And so we've got to always have this sort of what I always call moral imagination. If that was said to me, or if I felt that way, um, how would I respond? How would I want someone to show up for me if that was happening to me? And I think that's the mindset that we always have to have. Um, and it doesn't necessarily always have to be, DEI doesn't always have to be bad either. That's the other thing about DEI is that when people think of DEI, they automatically go to negative. Like we rarely talk about all the good things that we're doing. Um, yes, the good things, there's there's other things that we need to be addressing, but we have to take a moment to celebrate some of those milestones uh, because that's what's going to empower us to move forward. And if we only focus on concerns, and I think people do this, they want to help, but I know in this work, especially me, and I'm sure you too, as a DEI practitioner, rarely do I have somebody call me and say, let me tell you some of the good stuff that happened today. We was able to increase our representation and we were uh, able to change some policies that really, uh, have, you know, it was effective across the board. Uh, you know, we're really happy about some of the work that we're doing here in this hospital and this clinic yeah. uh, at this school. I don't get those kind of phone calls. You know, I always yeah. get the phone calls that have to do with I I'm upset because you're not doing this. I'm upset because we are still here and you've not increased representation as if that's going to happen overnight. I've gotten the I've gotten a lot of the concern pieces. And while those things are valid, um, if it's not attached with some prescriptive solutions um, or other suggestions to resolve it, um, that is not in any way going to help the situation either. And so yeah. while you might be pointing out the problem, you're also contributing to the problem um, if all you are bringing are concerns. Yes. Um, so um, thank you so much. So, so <laughs> yes, if you have good news, feel free to call Please. Uh, Dr. Craig and Dr. Green. because <laughs> we, we only tend to get those kinds of comments. Now, maybe it's just me, but... <laughs> I only get that good news stuff like in passing when I'm like at a conference getting coffee in the morning and somebody's like, hey, I just want to tell you such and such and such and such happened at my school or my university or at this clinic or whatever. Um, I don't get the emails that are like, yeah, kind of, you know, stuff. But um, but we get the emails that are not yay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I don't mind, I don't, you know, part of my job is to hear what some of those, our job is to hear some of those concerns, but that doesn't have to be all of it. I want to know about the good things that you're doing too, so that we can 
kind of push that stuff out there. And if you're doing good work in isolation, um, that's not helpful to you either, because there's there's a lot of folks that can benefit from the work that you're doing. Um, I do think that we work in silos um, and that's not unique to the veterinary profession. That's across the board when it comes to DEI. There are so many things that we could be doing together versus separate. Um, And so I would hope that folks would be a little bit more uh, open to being more collaborative so that we could do some of those things together and really highlight those things. Um, That's just work that has to happen across the board in any discipline, in any profession. Yeah. And, you know, don't, uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say completely. Don't cry for us, Argentina, like because we get hate mail. But it would be nice not to. <laughs> like, <laughs> it would also be nice not to, because you know, every now and again, like I said, um, my friend and colleague and I we chat weekly. But sometimes we also need to kind of, I'll characterize it as pop off in the text message and text thread because you know there's some stuff and people say. Like, you know, I know that that here's the thing. Let me let me put it in terms that um, a lot of folks will maybe hopefully understand those Yelp reviews and Google reviews that people are so upset about um, with veterinary clinics because they're terrible and awful and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, they come actually like we get those Google and Yelp reviews like directly to us. (laughs) They end up right in the inbox. They end up in DMs over on Twitter. They end up in my DMs, like, you know. So, you know, there is that. And I do think that, um, like you, I am open to um, hearing the voices, but I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's a little tough. It's a little Mm -hmm. tough. Um, Got a question um, from the live stream. Um, Are there any modifications um, for Journey for Teams if doing it at a College of Veterinary Medicine? Any modifications? Um, hmm, that's a great question. Uh, well, I can tell you that a lot of the examples that are are given, um, they're really clinic centered, and so if you're not in a clinic space, um, that may uh, be the the point where folks may not necessarily know yet because they've not experienced it. But I think a lot of them are easily adaptable. And and quite honestly, if it's a DVM program, I think it's good for them to see those clinic examples for them to see like, what is it that I would do if this came up? Because those examples that we're using are real. These are things that have happened to people. These are not um, examples that we're just making up and we want people to um, kind of figure out what they would do. It's all about, um, this is what happened. What would you do if it happened to you? And then try to brainstorm around that. Um, in the at least, if you don't see a clinic example, if most of the worksheets have the clinic examples, but built in the topic essay, we always put another example that's not clinic centered um, in the topic essay. And so look for those um, and just kind of highlight those uh, if you want to use the one in the topic essay instead of the one that's uh, featuring on the website, um, on the the handouts, you could do that. But for the most part, no, you don't have to do anything different. You can use it exactly as it is. Great, great, awesome. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about DEI as a discipline. Mm -hmm. So um, both of us have kind of come through pretty different uh, career paths to this work. And I tell people a lot that this is really interdisciplinary work. And so, um, you know, we've, we've often talked about um, the vast amount of journals that we need to skim and read and do on our, on a regular basis. I mean, it's like at least 
a dozen disciplines at any given time, just constantly scanning, right? Um, So what do you wish people knew about DEI work in general? That DEI is a discipline. (laughs) You know, I I think there are a lot of, there's been an uptick of folks that are interested in doing this work. Um, and, And a lot of that is driven by passion. And passion, of course, should be in every profession, right? In anything that you do, you want to see someone that's passionate about it. But there does um, need to be discipline that's added to that, which means to hone your craft. And a part of honing your craft means being current uh, with uh, what's happening now. Uh, And you have to be current and also be aware of what's happened in the past. Like I said, um, DEI has transformed from minority affairs to multicultural affairs. And all of those had different missions uh, that were tied to it. And if you're not aware of this sort of timeline that has happened, um, you will start suggesting things from 20 years ago that are no longer relevant. And so you want to certainly be relevant. um, And if you're not relevant and if you're not staying informed, that could be somewhat dangerous to someone who's new to the work um, and are trying to understand and learn. And if they're getting kind of old strategies that are no longer effective or even problematic, um, that can be a concern. Uh, but there is, as you mentioned, there is a body of knowledge um, around DEI that is multidisciplinary that you do have to look at, um, whether it's research, case studies to kind of inform some of the decision making. The other thing is DEI is always evolving. Um, what was new or the word to use last week may not be the word to use next week. You know, one of the things I, I've gotten from a lot of people and from organizations has been, well, should we be DEI? Should we be Jedi? Should we be uh, DEIB? Should we be, you know, all of these terms and words and letters that are out there? And and honestly, and this is what I would tell even in presentations, it has nothing to do with the letters. Mm-hmm. It's, it has everything to do with the work. Yeah. And all of those letters, regardless of what iteration you choose to use, at the end of the day, it's about bringing awareness. It's about um, promoting a positive work and learning culture. Um, it's about creating a sense of belonging. It's about finding ways to ensure that people have access to opportunities to grow and removing barriers. Those are the goals that we should be reaching towards. The diversity piece, yes, we all want to increase representation, but that is not the main goal, which a lot of people say diverse representation and they sit there and that's it. That's only a very small bit of what we're trying. That's not even the main thing. The main thing are the two other things, the equity piece and the inclusion belonging piece. Those are the the key there. Um, And I always use inclusion. When I say inclusion, inclusion means belonging. You can't have inclusion unless you have belonging. Um, And so when I say inclusion, it means and encompasses both of those things. And so all of that is a part of that work with DEI. Um, and I think you got to be responsible with this. If you are a DEI practitioner and people are coming to you to ask you questions, um, it can be easy to really give how you really feel, which may not be the most appropriate thing to say and do. Um, you want to make sure that you are being very strategic, being sensitive to who you're talking to um, and not say things that will deter people away from the work because there are folks that will hear something. And if you're saying, well, it's not my job. um, Well, as a DEI practitioner, if someone is coming to you for help, 
it absolutely is your job if someone is asking you a question um, because they are looking to you as an expert in the moment and they're looking for advice and guidance. And so you want to take that into consideration when you're speaking that to people, because what we don't want to do is deter folks, especially the folks that could easily shift to a person that could become an effective ally or who's willing to do the work. If we push them away, then that is not going to help our cause at all. And so that has to be a part of the conversation. And then the other piece is just because you say you want to do it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. You have to have some accountability with it. And so um, how can you ensure that what you are doing is working? Um, and then how can you keep on checking on it? You know, what can what kind of things can you put in place? Because there, there does have to be a level uh, of accountability with it. And if you're not going to be serious about the work, then I would implore you to Think about whether you're being more harmful by doing it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's real. I mean, I think that, you know, what what as DEI practitioners and professionals as a freestanding discipline, um, you know, we've seen a lot of folks kind of enter this space in the last several years and um, on the one hand, that is great because there is a real need for a lot more trained professionals. The challenge is not everybody is a trained professional, yeah. right? Um, not everybody is really kind of in tune with some of the theoretical underpinnings. They're not really familiar with some of the core writings and, you know, things that really kind of provide some structure to this as a discipline, right? And so, and even then, I mean, I, I just, like right now, I mean, I, what was it, a year and a half ago or so, almost two years ago, I took another class in just, you know, um, um, feminist theory and, and everything. And I mean, I hadn't taken one and it was like Black feminist theory and liberation theory and all of this stuff. And I mean, it was a six-week class and I like the reading I had not experienced that like intensity of yeah. reading fortunately this was like a non-graded class but I had not experienced <laughs> that since like my first week in my doctoral program I was like oh my goodness not only is yeah. it all I mean it's very dense right yeah. like we're reading we're reading you know Angela Davis we're reading Patricia um, Collins. Yeah, we're reading Bell Hooks. Yeah. Um, we're reading Audre Lord. We're reading like really deep stuff. And then, mm -hmm. you know, and this is dated stuff that, that is still very relevant and you're pulling it all the way mm -hmm. through history. And it's, it's, you know, and then you get the crazy email. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so I do think that folks, again, and I tell people again, like I said at the top of the show, it's a bit of head and heart work. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, yeah, it's a discipline. So do that, do that work. There's also lots of great things. And I tell people, I'm like, and please do, like, I don't know about you, like, email Dr. Craig and Dr. Greenhill, but if it's Googleable, <laughs> <laughs> Try that first. Like, like. Yeah. that, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know, I, I, I think, uh, I think it goes back to your earlier question about DEI. Um, I think there is this expectation that uh, we can be DEI practitioners can be somewhat superhuman, mm. um, because you get the, you should be the one to fix all things. 
uh, and not just fix all things, fix them yesterday. Okay. <laughs> I, I need them fixed now. And the one, the, the, the person who, who, who gets dismissed or excluded the most in this work, interestingly, is the DEI practitioner. Because you spend a lot of your time um, observing relationships and trying to rebuild them for other folks and trying to intervene in places where you're, you're like, okay, there's a gap here and we need to make a connection so we can resolve this issue. Um, and so you're looking out for all people, but rarely, one, are you as a DEI practitioner looking out for yourself? Um, and there are other folks that aren't doing the same thing either, like checking in on you. And so that can become, if, if it happens a lot, it can become a lot, especially in 2020, when we were called on a lot after George Floyd. Now, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. This is where I live now. This is the home of Breonna Taylor. Right. And so we were in the streets and, you know, I'm, my community is hurting. Yeah. Literally, my community is hurting um, and trying to be there for folks. Um, also trying to make sense of it to students who were trying to understand and wanted to be a part of the work, um, trying to be um, that sort of vessel for faculty and staff that wanted to do more and learn more and were pulling on you. And then I think both you and I were holding um, forums with students so that they can voice their concern. And then I, on the other hand, was also processing all of this as a Black woman who's married to a Black man who is a, a woman who's a mother, who's trying to deal with race relations and process it for myself about what it means while also being positive for other folks. Um, that's a lot. It is. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you you do question, you know, I need to make sure that I'm showing up for people in the way that I need to show up, but I also need to take some moments for myself so that I am okay mentally yeah. and physically. Yeah. I mean, and, and so um, I, thank you so much for saying that, um, because I do think that that um, it's very much it's a different kind of leadership. Right. And leaders have to kind of take, have those moments of trying to practice that self-care. Um, but um, yeah, DEI professionals really need that. And and I think that it's also important for folks to just know that we don't always have all the answers. We have a lot of answers and we have a lot of strategies and we got a lot of tools in the tool belt. But then there are moments um, like the one we're in now related to the Middle East conflict where the answers are not, uh, you know, cut and dry. Um, the perspectives are widely varied. Um, there's like, you know, geopolitical implications. There's religious discourse. There's it, And, and um, you know, we have our personal thoughts on these things, but that's not where we are right now. Like, right. We're in a, we're in, um, as, as a part of the job is helping folks navigate this when I'm like, I could really use a roadmap right now. <laughs> so, yeah. I could also use that roadmap. So, so with that, as we are about to close, what is your best advice, Dr. Craig, <laughs> for veterinary professionals willing to explore in good faith issues around DEI, both personally and professionally? I would say there's so many resources out there um, that are available to you. I'm going to put a plug in and say Journey for Teams. <laughs> okay, you can okay. certainly start with Journey. It's a free resource. It's voluntary. Okay. Do it on your own time. So many 
um, resources and things that you can do there. So let me just take you through some of the topics. So some of the topics are um, there's one on psychological safety. Um, you know, there's one on creating a brave space. There's one on uh, microaggressions, uh, religious diversity. Um, one that's out now is on accessibility. Uh, we've got one coming out next month on actually not next month, but in two days, uh, one on cultural responsiveness. Um, I've led that one. Um, Lisa will have one coming out on allyship. Uh, gender diversity is coming out in December. Um, there's all kinds of topics and resources. And these are things that people have asked us constantly for. So there's a library of resources there. So by March, you will have had 16 modules on all of these different uh, concepts. And then we've got some new things that'll be coming out in the summer. And so Journey for Teens, you can certainly start there. And I would say start there, especially for veterinary professionals, because a lot of the examples are veterinary specific. And so you can see yourself in the examples. And I think you it, it will help with the understanding piece better. Um, and then there's quite a few references and resources, even at the end of Journey for Teams, additional books and assessments and things that we recommend so that you can explain the, your library of resources to you. So certainly start there. Um, and there's some other programs that are out there. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Nicole Bruno, who's doing um, Blend. Um, that's a, a program. Possibilities um, is another program. If folks are interested in mentoring, ABMA has uh, they're a mentor program uh, too. Um, and so there's there's all kinds of things out there that people can get involved in and get engaged in. Um, and you can always shoot me an email about uh, resources that you've read that you think are really good and useful. I'd love to hear those. Um, and then if you're looking for specific references on things, um, you know, if you, you, if you hit your, if you end up, I guess, hitting your head up against the wall and you're kind of like, I don't really see a lot in this particular area. Um, we can certainly give uh, some more resources that you can take advantage of. Awesome. I am also um, going to do a shameless plug for our show that we filmed, I think, in nine, uh, 19. My bad. Wow. <laughs> Bystander. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Um, the show that we did in 2019 from Bystander to Ally um, features uh, Dr. Craig. Um, and um, we have that talk about kind of moving from that middle space to actually um, where you're watching things happen to moving into an action-oriented space. So... Thanks, girl. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This is fun. Super fun. Um, and, and feel free to reach out. Um, my email address, uh, you know, I can give that to you in a plug is lcraig at avma.org. And hopefully um, you'll send me some good news about good news. the work that you're doing, uh, because I'd love to hear a lot of those. Um, and then also just, you know, look for things that we'll be doing. Um, one of the biggest things that we will be doing next year, um, go on and put it on your calendars, November 7th through the 9th. Uh, we're looking to have a, a DEIW summit in Atlanta, Georgia. And so we'd love to have you there. Um, we hope to collaborate with AAVMC on this initiative and uh, they'll be their front and center. And so uh, we hope to see you there because we can't do this work if we don't have the support. Uh, so we certainly want you there so that we can um, we can have fellowship and, and look to do this work together. That's right. All right. Well. Thank you to my dear friend and colleague, Dr. LaTanya Craig from AVMA. It is um, always great uh, to have you on the show. Thank you so much. 
Um, and uh, shout out to AVMA for hiring an amazing individual, <laughs> right? Like, Thank you. Like, hey, now you got a great person. So, um, <laughs> so we're really, really happy. Um, so yes, this has been another episode of AVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Again. Thank you, LaTanya, for being on the show. Be sure to subscribe um, to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And um, be sure to check us out for our next episode. We'll probably have one or two more before the end of the year, before we take a little bit of a break. Um, but So stay tuned to the YouTube channel and your podcast apps. For the, um, But for today, we're going to say thanks again and take care.